So, let's uh, thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your mercies to us. We're grateful for salvation by faith. That our approach to you is direct, easy, for us Gentiles as well. We'd ask that you would enlighten us as to what Paul's teaching the Romans. In your son's name, amen. Okay. As you know, there has been uh, Paul going through the first eight chapters of Romans, establishing how everyone is a sinner. Everyone needs the grace of God. The grace of God is the means by which righteousness from God is given to you. And um, he delineates basically the background, or the you might say, uh, well, I don't want to call it the cosmology of this salvation, but he goes back to Adam and he talks about how Christ is a different phenomena, a second Adam for us in five and then six, and then starts dealing with the nature of of our relationship to sin, that the natural questions come up when you start pushing salvation by faith alone, still to this day, uh, an LDS person will object to our view of salvation because they're a works-oriented religion. And um, people always misunderstand that when you say faith, you're sort of like, I just have to wave the magic wand and, and all that I did was bad is now good, and so I don't have to be good, not realizing that faith is the pursuit of God, the turning towards God, the believing God, not merely holding the tenets of Christianity. Um, so when he gets down to chapter 7, um, uh, when he gets down to chapter 7, he addresses the Jews a little bit, I'm speaking to those who know the law in verse 1, and he talks about how death intervenes and sets us free from the law, and, um, and talks about how the law had made sin in his existence, um, that without the law, sin lies dead. When the law came, sin came to life, and I died. Those were his concepts. But he, 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 he delineates even more the, the catastrophe that is the law and the attempt um, to righteousness by the law. And then he, in chapter 8, has this great statement about the hope of glory, the, 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 the glorification of the believers. And um, he ends with, that now to death nor life, nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the point I think I, I failed to make last week, but I, so I just wanted to mention it uh, before we start, step into 9, was that a lot of people are looking through Romans especially in 8 and 9, for issues of determinism. He did talk about predestined from the, we conform to the image of his son in 8. But whatever the nature of the mechanism of the destiny or the determination, we should be thinking less of determinism and more of the destination. The, the, idea, of our, uh, the idea of our end, conform to the image of Christ, be glorified like his son, that's our destination. Um, the, the internecine arguments about um, what's the mechanism of that should probably fade a little bit when you start thinking of where you're going, not how you're getting there. But, in chapter 9, he comes back to the Jews. 
because the Jews are um, kind of this Jew-Gentile issue is a, is a question that has been featured in the whole book. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, after he has said this great, you know, song to the glorification of the believer, that we are going to be set free from this futility, he comes back to the question of the Jews, uh, admitting that, it's a, that this is not merely a, yeah, I've come up with a religion that excludes you guys, too bad. Or I've come up with a religion that doesn't credit you guys for being Jews. Um, he has a real love for these people. That's what's going to come out over the next three chapters. Uh, uh, 9, 10, and 11 are heavy on this, heavy on this issue. You say, well, how do you know he's speaking about the Jews? For I would, could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, my race. So his, he wants to address the concerns of the Jews that, that he knows or naturally will have, have come up at this point. Uh, you have just broken down everybody to a center. You have broken down everything to faith, righteousness through faith. That the law is nothing. The law has been scrubbed. And uh, it was part of the problem. Though it was good, it was part of the problem. So he's going to have to answer some questions. They are Israelites. And to them belong the sonship, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and of their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. God, who is over all, be blessed forever. Amen. It's a great, a great positive statement. He was a Jew of Jews, a tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of Pharisees. He was, according to the law, blameless. He was a notable uh, young buck in, in Israelite circles. He was there at the stoning of Stephen. He cast his vote against him. He was, he was commissioned by the Sanhedrin to arrest Christians. He, he understood Judaism. And for St. Paul, that... The shift to grace, and it's always good to remember what happened to him at the, on the road to Damascus, such a shift to grace is so stark. It's not like he personally worked his way out of the law and into a knowledge of grace. He went on a dime, 180 degrees, and realized it like no one else. Where he didn't give an inch to people who tried to bring them back under the law at the Jerusalem Council. He confronted St. Peter on this very issue. It, it, it was so stark to him. But at the same time, it's not a uh, looking back and thumbing his nose. He is a Jew himself and his own. He said, that's why he says, I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness. I really care for the Jews, and I understand everything they have, even to the point that Jesus Christ was a Jew. So, once you say that, you know, a lot of the questions that arise are, well, all that, and I still get this from Christians today, all that in the Old Testament. What, what's, uh, did all that fail? Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God had failed. He's already said that they have to become Christians by faith. They need the gospel like the Gentiles. 
But you have to answer, well, what about all those strong remarks? All that to, to Abraham, all the way down, the promise carried through Isaac and Jacob, and then down to David, and what, what's up? Did God, you know, is this plan B? What's the um, Gentiles, because the Jews weren't working out for him? Um, so he starts his argument on that question. Why would you say that the word of God had failed? He argues that it hasn't. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're descendants. But through Isaac shall your descendants be named. Now, what he's arguing is to the Jews. The Jewish audience is listening to this. They have this question. And he is going to box them in by what they have already admitted to themselves where they very comfortably go, I'm a Jew. I was born a Jew. Uh, my grandfather was a Jew, and we've been Jews since Jews got started. And, uh, but in their own law, in their own histories, they realize that descent isn't really necessary or crucial. So through Isaac shall your descendants be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are reckoned as descendants. He says the dis distinction between Isaac, the unnamed other character, Ishmael, and you have to also say, after Sarah, Sarah dies, Abraham gets married to Keturah and cranks out, oop, I don't know, 11, 7, I don't know how many more kids. Midian was one of them that, that Moses later buried into the Midianite. Uh, gang. Um, Abraham had a lot of kids. And we don't know really how many, because you don't know how many, uh, it doesn't list them all. But if the Jews are going, it's descent. He says, you know, here at the promise, it's not descent. Because Ishmael, Abraham even argued, yes, you know, can't Ishmael stand before you? You know, can't you count him as the child of the promise? But he's not. He's the father of the Arabs. For this is what the promise said. About this time I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived. And he moves on to the next generation. That son was Isaac, and Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the elder will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Both Esau and Jacob were both physical descendants of Isaac. They were twins. Esau was firstborn. Jacob was second. And so you suddenly are being told that in this promise of God, what God's purposes are in his election, it's not following what all Jews seem to be counting on. Either the good works, before either had done good or bad, and they were not yet born. He told, and I have the passage here in Genesis 25:22, that children struggled together within her, and she said, if, the, if it is thus, why do I live? So she, so she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples born of you. You shall, shall be divided, and the one shall be stronger than the other. The elder shall serve the younger. 
Now God's purpose and election went with Jacob, the younger. Mom knew this, Rebecca knew this, she also was in on it with Jacob to steal the, the blessing from Isaac. <coughs> we don't know how God would have wanted it done, but that, that's how it ended up happening. Um, but he's letting the Jewish audience know, look, everything that you would point to in the law, it just increases the sin. And God isn't even in terms of the promise and the election looking at that anyway. The election has nothing to do with whether Esau was good or bad or Jacob was good or bad. You read through that part of Genesis and you go, I like Esau a lot more than I like Jacob. Jacob was a stinker. I mean, a deceiver, a, 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 a real scam artist. God was with him. But Esau, boy, he should have wanted to kill Jacob. did want to kill Jacob at one point, but... But he ended up forgiving his brother. Later, the passage where it says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. That's from Malachi. Much later, that's post-exilic. Okay, this is not speaking of Jacob and Esau as people, but of the two nations that came from Jacob and Esau. It's Malachi 1-2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Speaking of the nations, the Edomites were descendants of Esau and, uh, and the Israelites of Jacob. Um, but whatever the case, the promise of election, the promise of, of all this thing that the Jews were counting on, they're wondering if Paul's theory about salvation by faith has made that a failure for God. And he's saying, no, you have to admit that it's the promise, not your descent. It's the promise, not your good works. It's the promise, not primogenitorship. It means firstborn. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Now, this is a natural question. Injustice? Well, he's not, he's not rewarding people for, you know, what they are, right? There's no, justice would be causality. You know, you have your, you, when you're just, you are rendering either the good or bad due to the, to the responsible agent, and the responsible agent is the agent causal. Well, here is... All these things just being ignored. Was there injustice? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's making his case out of the Old Testament, telling Jews that if you read the Old Testament, you will see the God of Christ and the God of faith being represented, representing his principles here. When it comes to mercy, since that's what it takes, since the law cannot make righteous, since the law just brings great condemnation, the law just brought death. When the law came, sin came to life, and I died. So it's got to be mercy. Well, the thing about mercy, mercy isn't justice. It's not attached. Mercy is not attached to the recipient. You get the mercy, but if it was in any way connected to you, 
about you earning something from God, it wouldn't be mercy, right? God, uh, uh, <coughs> if you live, <coughs> if you live by works, you're getting your due, right? You're getting you're getting paid what you're what you're owed. You're getting just treatment. But mercy is not attached to you. It's attached to the merciful. God is merciful, and God has compassion, and mercy and compassion is entirely up to you. I can remember raising the kids at various points where they had done something worthy of a spanking. And I just said, I'm not going to spank you. I would be righteous in spanking you. I would enjoy spanking you. But I'm not going to. Because I want you to not only learn justice, I want you to learn about mercy. That it has... You didn't do anything to deserve the mercy. Now he quotes this about Moses. Now one of the important things, if you get anything out of Romans 9, um, one thing is look up all the passages. He's quoting Old Testament all the way through. And sometimes you think what you know what he's talking about because you think you've got a particular Protestant Christian context going on and you just read through it and think that you know what he's saying. Um, and if you read the context, you realize that in some cases it's the reverse. The passage, the passage that he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, this is when he's talking to Moses on the mount. And it's out of Exodus 33 in this enclosed box here. Uh, 18, Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And that's what Moses had asked to say. The glory of the Lord, when it, you see this in the New Testament, so the, uh, this is why in Christian women, the veiling passage in Corinthians 11, 11 about she's the glory of her husband, the husband does not cover his face because he's the glory of the Lord, etc., etc., etc. The glory is the face. Moses has asked to see his face, and God denies him on the basis, I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll let my goodness pass before you. I'll cover you with my hand. I'll, you'll see my back, but you're not seeing my face. And so it depends not a man's, on a man's will or exertion, but upon God's mercy. And then he quotes, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy upon whomever he wills, and he hardens the heart of whomever he wills. Now as soon as you read that verse, you think you know what that verse about Pharaoh is about and what it's from. Because you, you've been in those discussions where Pharaoh hardens his heart. You know, the Lord hardens his heart and, and Pharaoh hardens his heart and people argue about whether that, you know, in the whole, again, the whole discussion about determinism and freedom of the will. But remember, this is the first century. They haven't had that discussion yet. That theological, those theological camps have not really been raised. He's talking about Jew, Gentile, law, faith, how are you saved, and answering questions of Jews who are bothered that their standing is eliminated. They don't have that standing anymore. 
It's now by faith, and it's for everyone. But you think that when you think that you've got it going, these are people who are schooled in the law. He just told them this passage about, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. We will walk away with that like it's a good thing to put on the fridge or, or something that makes us feel good, not realizing God's denying Moses. And with Pharaoh, it's out of Exodus 9. For this time I will send all my plagues upon your heart and upon your servants and your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose have I let you live, to show you my power, so that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. It's a mercy to Pharaoh. Now, for all the whole story, Moses, Pharaoh gets it in the shorts with a lot of different... But Pharaoh survives. God has let him live because... And, and Paul's bringing this up to Moses. Luminary in Jewish law and thought is denied the mercy of God. Pharaoh, who is the, the great infidel, the out of, you know... Uh, I am the God that led you up out of the land of Egypt. This is the big story. Pharaoh is being shown mercy. He's illustrating mercy with a Gentile being allowed to live so that God's name may be declared throughout the earth. And it's basically saying, I, I am God. I have the right to show mercy to whom I show mercy because mercy rests in the merciful, not in the recipient. You will say to me then, why does he... Still find fault, for who can resist his will? When we think it's not just, when we think it's not what we're due, the deal struck, we think then it's arbitrary. That those are the those are the two worlds. We've got uh, we've got wicked men who are told how to be good in the law and be faithful to the rites and the sacrifices. And that's a, um, a path that, well, anybody who really wants to go after God is going to go that way. But that's the only hope. That's the only where you can go. We're the only true people who worship God, the only true temple. Um, and you're dragging that away from us. No law, no priesthood, no sacrifices. Um, the promises really are only going to those to whom the promises are given, though not the, who the dissent is given. And uh, uh, so what am I left with? It just sounds, it sounds arbitrary. And, we, and we sound, it, it, we're making it sound like we're victims of God. If, if the Jews aren't, aren't uh, in, uh, that's one, not fair, and two, if it's, not, if it's going to be that way, it just seems like it's going to be willy-nilly. How's, how's it going to be? How are we, how are we going to um, come back from this? First off, he says, but who are you, a man, to answer back to God? First thing you know, you don't get insolent. <laughs> You're still dealing with the divine. And the giver of the mercy decides who gets the mercy. Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me thus? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for beauty and another for menial use? Now this is an illustration probably 
from um, Jeremiah chapter 18, which is the Old Testament uh, prophecy of Jeremiah is based on the potter. And the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my word. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you what this potter has done, says the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, then I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the evil that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, that I will build and plant it. And if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will repent of the good which I intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping evil against you, and devising a plan against you. Return, every one from his evil way, and amend your ways and your doings. Now, that's where Paul likely gets the image of the potter. The reason I say likely, because it's the theme he carries on through here. We, if, if you insert into this passage... Uh, sort of modern evangelism about the one person you're talking to and saying they're either hardened by God or God's going to show them mercy. They're either elect or they're not. Um, you're jumping way ahead of the case. You might be able to make that case somewhere else, but not in Romans 9. Romans 9 is about the Jewish people and how everything that had been laid in place before they had misunderstood. They had thought it was dissent when it was promise. They had thought that it was law when it was faith. Remember how he argued that Abraham had, had been credited as righteous before the circumcision, before the law, before the people of Israel existed. And that these things have always been true for God. So when he goes to this issue, they say, first, don't answer back to God, too. Two, it's the Creator's right to do what He will, and I can make one vessel for beauty and another for menial use out of the same lump. Notice that he's talking about the same lump. Then he asks the question, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath made for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So what if God, while he desires to punish the wicked, has put up with those vessels of wrath so he would have this opportunity to show mercy? Now, it's not just one category here and another category there. It also tells you in Timothy that if you're an ignoble vessel, purify yourself so you can be made into a vessel for noble use. You can change the kind of vessel you are. Jeremiah 18, you change who you are. What vessel I was shaping you into will be changed into the other one. The same lump, one vessel for wrath, one vessel for mercy. It's not merely a, 
um, two, two categories of people, say, but it can be in one person's history. You could be, a, in other words, the destiny of wrath is one he teaches in Jeremiah is not a destiny, not a fixed destiny, not an absolute destiny. Oh, it's where God, what God is shaping for the person. It says in Ephesians that we were all by nature children of wrath. That's what we were all destined for. I was destined for hell. And my, the vessel was reshaped. The, the, the clay was redone. If I repented, if I turned, God repented of the evil he intended to do to me. The destruction he intended to give to me. And he's arguing with the Jews here. He says, what if, work with me here, if you want to use that phrase. Work with me here. What if God was just giving, patiently giving time to make his mercy known because he had a point of mercy, not a point of arbitrariness. It wasn't justice failed here, and so I'm just going to be arbitrary. But he says, I'm, I can't look at, I can't be arbitrary, and I can't be just. Because everyone's going to be destroyed if I'm just. So God waits patiently, even though he wants to show his power and show his wrath, he waits patiently to have the opportunity to show his vessels, um, uh, the vessels of mercy, the glory he had prepared beforehand, from Jew and Gentile alike. You say, well, how do you, how do you know that, that the topic is really um, what he's saying in Jeremiah 18? You know, Jeremiah 18 by itself lets you know that the purposes of God, stated intentions through a prophet, can be changed. That any kind of notion you have that if God says something through a prophet, it's fixed, isn't biblical. When he's lecturing on the nature of prophecy, he says, I'm open to changing my intentions. The nature of mercy itself that we're talking about is the change of an intention. Because his mercy saved me from him, not from anything else. His mercy saved me from him. I never received mercy if I was always on a list of elect people so before I was born. I was never going to get mercy because there was never any change of intention. I was always on the right team, already made the, made the draft. The reason biblically, I mean, those are just arguments from the Word and arguments from what Jeremiah 18 says within itself. But then he quotes Hosea. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. Now, this is where it really, this verse is really dangerous to think you understand. Because you, it sounds like he's talking about the Gentiles. People who are not my people, I will call my people. And that could work. You could make that work in the passage, right? Jews are a little upset. Gentiles are included by faith. And so I will call, you know, he talks about that jealousy in other places. And so, yeah, we, it, it could work. We could make it work. And so when, since we can make it work, we don't look it up. Okay, look it up. Hosea. Chapter 2, end of chapter 2 is the verse that we just quoted, I will have pity, I'm not pitied, I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, thou art my God. Now, when you're looking at it in Hosea, you're going, hold it, 
Why does it capitalize not my people? Why does it capitalize not pity? Well, because in the first chapter of Hosea, when Hosea is first commissioned, He starts to have sons by this prostitute that he was told to marry. And um, in verse 6, he has a daughter. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name not pity, for I will no more have pity on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have pity on the house of Judah, and I'll deliver them by the Lord their God. I will do not deliver them by bow, nor by sword, nor by war, nor by horses, nor by horsemen. When she had weaned not pitied, the girl's name. She conceived and bore a son. The Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. He's talking about the Jews when he's talking about not my people. Okay? He's talking about the Jews because he is letting them know that although you had all this stuff back in the first few verses, that wasn't didn't work, wasn't enough. And it's bothering you that election doesn't consider that. But even in your law, it wasn't considered. It wasn't dissent. It wasn't good works. It wasn't primogenitorship. And you think, oh my gosh, it's not just. God's being arbitrary here. And he says, I'm being merciful, which is different. And... When I'm talking about mercy and my intentions, the one intention that you're not taking in consideration is mercy against justice because justice is going to pour out wrath and that that can be not worked out of. You don't do enough good deeds, obey the Ten Commandments enough, make enough sacrifices. None of that will work. But faith, faith will. He's arguing to the, he's arguing to the Jews that faith is going to be the path they have to take. So he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. He's saying to the Jews here, I will, even though this cut you off at the socks, he had just told them, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. He just told them an illustration out of Jeremiah that was the nature of his dealings with nations, that if he declared bad things concerning them, if they turned, he says, I am shaping a evil against you. Turn from your wicked ways. In verse 26, in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. Now, that was the verse right after. The portion I read that informed you as to who not my people were. The next verse. Yet the number of the people of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which can neither be measured nor numbered, and in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, sons of the living God. So Paul is he's right in the middle of this Hosea argument about not my people. And he's letting them know that not my people can be turned. The Jews can be saved. His whole point of this chapter is, I have a great agony in my heart about the Jews. I want them to be saved. And then he lays out his argument of what the problem is and how the Jews can be called in. Now, what's interesting when he says that is the, the, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22 um, is, is in the first promise back earlier in Genesis, 
he said, like the stars of the heavens, you know. And then in Genesis 22, he includes the sands of the sea. And the verse out of Hosea that Paul just quotes refers to the numbers of the sands of the sea for the people of Israel. And the next verse that he quotes out of Isaiah. Isaiah cries out, verse 27, concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will execute his sentence upon the earth with rigor and dispatch. Now he's letting them know something. He's letting them know it, Judaism, qua Judaism, doesn't work. The law doesn't work, descent doesn't work, the nation doesn't work. It's the promise, and the promise is going to come to you by faith. And whatever you were, it can be remedied by faith, but, and there is that promise in Hosea that it's going to happen, that Jews will be saved. Isaiah says, yeah, sands of the sea, but it's going to be a remnant. It's going to be a remnant. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us children, we would have fared like Sodom and been made like Gomorrah. Now, that's a quote out of Isaiah 1. Uh, the last one was out of Isaiah 10. I have the references there. Out of Isaiah 1. And uh, the word there, children, in, the, uh, in, in, in Romans, in the Septuagint, it's the word seed, like children. But in the Hebrew, it's survivor or remnant. He has just said, only a remnant will be saved. And once again, if the Lord of hosts had not left us children or survivors or a remnant, we would have fared. We would have wiped out totally. Totally wiped out. So, what should we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, righteousness through faith. But that Israel, who pursued the righteousness which is based on the law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. If you're wondering what Romans 9 is about, that's a great verse. Okay? It lets you know, he's not talking about your, my salvation, whether we're elect or free will. It's the question of election and free will. It doesn't argue for free will, it doesn't argue for election of that nature, a personal uh, a determinism uh, to, uh, to faith. It's talking about whether or how this whole shift happened from the Old Covenant to the New and how it was broken down and how Paul argues it's rooted in the Old Testament. In the Old Covenant, the New Covenant is rooted not by the preceding covenant. It was not rooted in the preceding covenant because that didn't work. But rooted in all these, you might say, obscure readings. We would call them obscure when you're reading out of Hosea. Um, obscure readings, letting you know that this has always been true. That righteousness, the promise, turning to God, having faith, was always, always the path. The Gentiles received it. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith. That's why the Jews didn't get it. The Jews did not receive the promise because the promise was for the remnant of Jews who received it by faith. And most of the Jews didn't. And until you turn to God, you turn back to him in faith, until you submit yourself to Christ, you don't get the mercy of God. The mercy of God is not arbitrary. It's about your attitude towards him.
That's what faith is, an attitude towards God, not a deed. It's not a deed. It's, it's, it, don't call faith a work. Faith is an admission there are no works. Faith is the admission that, that it can only be my belief, what I affirm, what I, what I claim is true, what I know is true. So bloodline, birth order, law keeping didn't work. They didn't pursue it by faith, but as it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Now he's not trying to, he's trying to help them understand, but he's not trying to have them play diversity. We're not trying to have messianic Jews here on one side who still do it the Jewish way and Christians who do it the Christian way, or is not two paths to God. No, it 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 was a it's a it's a breaker. It's it's where you were driving too fast and the speed bumps in front of Winco caught you by surprise. And that's what they stumbled over. As it is written, behold I am laying in Zion a stone which will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, when, he, when he's quoting there out of Isaiah 28, if you'll look it up, it says, the, the, he who believes in him will not make haste, or something like that, I think is the Masoretic text. This is the Septuagint again. Paul quotes aggressively from the Septuagint, and it's shame in the Septuagint. If you believe in him, you will not be ashamed. If you don't, you'll stumble over him. And Jesus makes this point himself in Matthew 21, using this passage. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The very stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruits of it. So he uses the same idea of um, um, I didn't have the, the there's a, another portion that ha actually refers to the stumbling but we have that referred to a number of times in the New Testament the stumbling stone laid in Zion etc. This is what Christ is and what faith is is the realization all the pride of the Jews is going to run up against it and either bow the knee to Christ or not if they don't they stumble if they believe they have the faith that changes God's plan for them. Now chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. Now, however you deal with, you know, you say, well, I don't know if I'm going to have to go over this again, Evan, I look up all these passages, but whatever is going on with these vessels of wrath, the, the thrust of it is they could change, they, they could, something can happen. Not more works of the law, they can't become more Jews, but something can happen. Hosea promises it. Isaiah promises it, that a remnant. And, and then Paul tidies it up and says, they're not in because they didn't have faith. They've stumbled over Jesus Christ. And I desire that they may be saved. Well, again, as you know, I'm not a determinist, so I don't, I don't, Although I don't think this passage is about determinism or freedom of the will, I think 
that things said in it are difficult to account for by someone who would think that that's a fixed determinism, the vessels of wrath. Because he has taken them, and it goes on through 11, that Paul still desires them to be saved. Well, if you know they're damned eternally, you know, and they're on the bad list, things aren't changing. But I desire they may be saved. The beginning of chapter 11 you know, is, uh, so has, have they stumbled, so is the fall. By no means. In other words, this stumbling over Jesus Christ, this failure to believe, this thing that has made God as a potter shape wrath against them, isn't a fixed commodity. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but it is not enlightened. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God, and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law, that everyone who has faith may be justified, or, as the word means, made righteous. They did not submit to God's righteousness, which is Christ, the end of the law, and everyone who has faith is made righteous. That's God's righteousness. That's what the Jews did not submit to. You can have a lot of zeal for things like a rule-keeping faith. Boy, that's, those are the best kind of religions. You've got a tidy set of rules. You know what you've got to do. You can really become artistic about it. But it's not enlightened. It's not, they, they're not illuminated suddenly. By, I was just thinking about this as I was reading in Romans over the last few weeks and, and just going over it uh, uh, a lot. Um, I've read a lot of ancient stuff. St. Paul is crazy smart. I, I cannot imagine any philosopher, I've read Aristotle and Plato and those guys, and, and they're smart, they're smart, but they're not like Paul. Paul, if he was making this up, he's got to get the Nobel Prize for it. I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, just to construct this kind of ethical um, glory, there's an ethical glory and a purity of purpose that if you made this up, where did you get it? <laughs> where did you get this idea? What kind of what kind of world where all the other religions were doing it somewhere and so different in St. Paul? It's, it's an amazing, enlightened thing. We read it comfortably. For 2,000 years, Pauline wording has entered our language. We, we speak in terms of Paul's thought and the like, but it wasn't always thus. That, what did someone say? I, I, Shakespeare's all right. There's just too many cliches. And you go, um, uh, yeah. This is uh, this is an enlightenment. You can have a zeal for other things, and you can think that Paul's approach to the righteousness of God is not correct. But Paul is laying it out: is that it is Christ versus you. Establishing your own, they don't submit. That's the basic rule all the way back to the beginning of this book. Faith is you turning to God and seeking Him. You believe He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Seeking God because you want to do what He says rather than, the default, doing what you had planned. 
or your cult leader. You know, you're, you're going to have some combination of authorities in your life. And if they're not God, it's not faith. Faith submits itself to God's righteousness. And if you have Christian faith, you submit to Christ being the end of the law. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by it. That's out of Leviticus. But the righteousness based on faith says, and I apologize for Paul here, because this is not good writing. Okay, I, The brilliance of thought, bizarre sentences, this, this is how it reads. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. Okay, already I'm lost. I, I, what am I saying? What am I not saying? I am, I am saying not saying what? I don't say, oh no, I do, excuse me, I do say, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That's what I do say, don't say. Are we lost yet? It clears up. It clears up. What he's letting you know, there may have been schools of thought or people who said, who will ascend into heaven? Who will descend into the abyss? He says, don't say these things. Don't even make suggestions that tamper with the center of the gospel. There is something that, what does it say, verse 8? Now let me read that all the way through, verse 6. The righteousness based on faith says, okay, if I, I've set aside Moses because the law, they could not succeed in fulfilling it, and if the only way you could live is if you succeeded in fulfilling it. The, the righteousness based on the law shall live by it. If you make it, good for you. But you're not going to make it. And nobody did. But the righteousness based on faith says, which is what the Gentiles had, and what the Jews had that are of the remnant, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Saying, don't challenge these things. Bring Christ down, denying his deity, don't, hasn't gone into Hades, that is, he hasn't been raised from the dead. And there were people in the early church um, who were thinking along those lines. They, this is a little early for the Gnostics, but the Gnostics got to the point of saying he was just an ephemeral appearance of um, one of the descending emanations from God who is apparent enough to look like he was there but not apparent enough to be there physically, so he didn't really die and he wasn't really buried. People do it today with Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code, you know, or whatever other uh, a modern challenge. He didn't really die. He later married Mary Magdalene and had the, 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 the royal line of the Merovingians or whatever it is of France. Uh, I don't know who they were. Um, well, whatever the case, they're trying to deny he died Denied he was raised. Denied he was from heaven. What does it say? But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips, and in your heart. 
That is the word of faith which we preach. Look at that location near you, on your lips, in your heart. Because, that's, this is the because it is near, near you, on your lips, in your heart, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Tremendous, tremendous statement. You have to know what you mean when you say it, but when you say it, it's, it's a tremendous truth. Because when you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, it's a uh, kind of a... Well, we have a problem with it because, again, Christian phrasing has lost all of its... Well, I corrected a young lady this morning for apl applying the word awesome to... Um, what was it? Going to Costco. I think it was going to Costco. Just awesome. I said, that's not awesome. Was this because of the C.S. Lewis reading last night? No. It was just that I don't like people destroying words. And it's destroyed that. Jesus is Lord is kind of that way too. Because I can remember back in the Jesus Freak days. Posters everywhere. Jesus is Lord. One way sign. Everybody saying it. It just became nobody knew what a Lord was. I was talking to someone who was involved with crusade and um, dealing with, uh, they have an illustration of Jesus on the throne of your life. You know, the carnal Christian doesn't have Jesus on the throne. He's in your life, but not on the throne. And you're on the throne and all sorts of little diagrams, little picture of a chair. I said, they, they say it all the time, but they have no idea what a throne is. Oh, if pushed, then we go, yeah, it's the chair that the king sits in but no concept of majesty, no concept of what it is to be seated in the throne. No concept when you say, Jesus is Lord. And the, the way we know this, the reason I'm, I'm leaning on this is not to drag things out. The, the passage he quotes in verse 11, the scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. Uh, that's actually from, excuse me, not that one, that's from uh, the earlier one in, in Isaiah 28. But the one that says in verse 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's Joel 2. Where's Joel? Old Testament, I think. Joel, Amos, Joel 2. What's the Joel 2.28? I've got to find it here. Oh, here it is. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even upon the men servants and maid servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And you'll notice that being quoted at Pentecost by Peter. And I will give portents in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape 
as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. The same idea, but the reason I'm bringing it up, not only because it's quoted at Pentecost, but it's also the quote here, is anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If I confess with my lips that Jesus is Lord. Well, the name in Joel is the name of God. It's not Lord Kyrios or Adonai. It's Yahweh. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is God. I'm not just... I'm not just trying to maintain that he came down from heaven like some archangel. I'm not just trying to say he did the magic trick of coming up from the dead. I have to I am making claims about what God has said of himself in Christ, because the whole point of your faith is not to seek out some new religion that you can craft to make Jesus interesting to you, but to make to, to bow the knee to what God has said, to believe God. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. For man believes with his heart, and so is justified. He confesses with his lips, and so is saved. It's something... Someone says, yeah, do you mean, mean I have to say it? When I grew up in a Baptist church, I had to walk the aisle. I white-knuckled it many a Sunday as they sang that last hymn trying to keep from going forward as they played on my emotions because I knew it was necessary to walk the aisle. I never did. I survived because by the time we moved to Michigan, we were going to a General Baptist Church and they didn't do that. So I was able to be baptized without walking the aisle. But you said, well, why didn't I want to do that? I was ashamed. I was embarrassed. I'm sorry. When you believe, in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, this is near you. This isn't, this isn't you, you know, repeating back to your parents what they'd like you to believe, to make mom feel better, because a little Johnny is damned, unless he does. It is uh, real you, real close. Something that you would be really proud of. I know, uh, by the way, I know the living God. Just saying. Maker of heaven and earth. Just saying. I get around, you might know some famous people. I know God. Jesus is Lord. So you know Eric Clapton. Well, that's nice. I know God. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Because if I believe in my heart, I am being made righteous. I, I have, it's not just having belief, not faith, any faith. Faith is good because faith is a, is a word that people like to sell you at uh, Bed Bath & Beyond to put on your wall. But it is, a, um, it is, an, it is directed at something. I believe, I'm believing someone. And that someone is pleased with that. He rewards those who seek him. That's what Hebrews says. He rewards those who seek him. And he confesses with his lips, and so is saved. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame. Again, that's back in Isaiah 28, and right at the end of chapter 9. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. 
Remember, he's still on the topic. He's not giving you verses to pull out and use independently. You have to remember the, the direction of his thought. No distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and bestows his riches upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look at those things in red. Verse 11, no one. Verse 12, no distinction. Verse 13, everyone. So this path, this is what's annoying to the Jew. Annoying to the inner ring. Annoying to the people that thought it should be justly applied to them. They are God's chosen people. And we are the rest of us who are actually made God's chosen people. We know we were God's objects of wrath. And we know. We came to him on our knees and we said, we believe in your son. We believe in your son. He has saved us. And then this great passage in 14. So, if that's where it, if that's where it comes down to it, this, this whole thing, nine, ten chapters, right to this point, everyone who calls upon the Lord was saved. Um, insolent young man in the back raises his hand and says, well, uh, how are they going to call upon him whom they have not believed? I mean, people, if they need to call on him, Call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. But I haven't believed. Well, of course, you'd have to believe first, right? You wouldn't call if you hadn't believed. These are rhetorical questions. And how are they to believe in him and whom they have never heard? Okay, yeah, that's, that's another problem. And already, by the back of your mind, you've heard this from some non-believer. Well, what about the innocent man in Africa? There are no innocent. You've been through Romans? There are no innocent people in Africa. Show me the innocent man in Africa. We'll talk about it. Only then. Because, but he said, well, they haven't heard. If, if, this, if this mercy of God is conditioned on belief, and belief is conditioned on hearing, what if they've never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how could men preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Isaiah 52. It's why we evangelize. We know this is the path. We know that unless they believe and call on the name of the Lord, they will not be saved. So, they have got to have something to believe. They've got to have the message. They're not going to hear the message unless I preach it. They're not, I'm not going to preach it unless I'm, I choose to do so, get sent somehow. It's a blessed occupation. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says... Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And there's another problem. There's a church on every corner in America. It's not the innocent hot and tot in Africa. It's the guilty American. And he has run into these Christians, you know, everywhere, we hope. And just like in Israel, Isaiah is going, Lord, who's believed what they have heard? So faith comes from what is heard. And what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. That's, in case you're wondering where faith comes from, faith is your consideration of the message that you heard. You, like in Romans 1, where it says, uh, um, God has made it now. Is, it, is that the phrasing? Um, when it talks about them being without excuse. 
Um, his eternal power and deity have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. The message, when you're clear with the gospel, you're preaching Christ crucified, Christ as Lord, Christ raised from the dead, Christ ascended to the Father. For the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. He is going to judge the world. Consequently, you better make it right with him. You better do what he says. That's the, the message of the gospel. Now, faith comes from what is heard. What is heard comes from the preaching of Christ, but it doesn't come necessarily. People don't always believe the gospel. I was talking to various people recently who were talking to non-believers, and there's a frustration that descends upon them, and that frustration is um, they're not believing. I said, well, they didn't believe Jesus either. I mean, what? A brilliant man like Paul, they didn't believe him either. Agrippa said, Paul, you think in a short while to make me a Christian? Paul hopes so, but it doesn't seem to happen as far as we know. A lot of people ran into very brilliant people preaching the gospel. Everyone who heard Billy Graham didn't walk the aisles. They don't turn because man doesn't want to give up his authority of his life. He wants to pursue righteousness on his own, establish his own, because, as we covered earlier in the book, he wants, every man wants to have the person that cares about the most in charge of what's going on there, rather than God. The Gospels preached, they reject it, but it's the only way salvation is going to come to somebody. But I ask, verse 18, have they not heard? Indeed they have. Because, you know, when someone says, well, there's a lot of people who haven't heard. And Paul says, uh, they've heard enough. Everywhere they've heard enough. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Well, again, you look up the passage. Psalm 19. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. He's quoting a passage that is the direct reference to Romans 1, and of course Psalm 19, that says, Nature itself stands in front of people staring at them. His infinite power and deity are clearly perceived the things that have been made. They did not honor God or give him thanks. And when you honor God and give him thanks, you are bowing the knee to him. You believe he exists and that he rewards the seeker. There isn't anybody that hasn't heard. They have, they have chosen to say, well, the missionary hasn't talked to me yet. Well, what about your conscience? What about the God who made all this? And remember, mercy is not owed to anyone. It's mercy. It's a gift. It's only us who are trying to keep our disobedient child from throwing a fit that we have to buy them a gift at the same time we buy a gift for some kid in their class for the gift exchange because you're so afraid little Johnny's going to throw a fit in the aisle of Walmart. Because we think that one gift has to be, everyone has to get one. Everyone has to get a cookie. And when now you go to the fair, everybody gets a blue ribbon. Everybody gets a blue ribbon. It's, it's just because 
Well, it, it's not fair. But mercy, even when if you're earning it, it's certainly not fair to give everybody a ribbon. But they think well, if it's arbitrary, it's you don't deserve a gift merely because someone else was given it. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, <coughs> I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In all of this, Paul is willing to say, look, you are important people. No, it doesn't count. But, in the promises, it, did, it was a fulfillment of all that God had done. And you agree with that because you agree that it's not descent. Because you're only descendants of Jacob. You're only descendants of, uh, you're only descendants of Isaac, not Ishmael. You don't grant the promises to Ishmael. You don't grant the promises to Edom. You already agree with all of this. You, you were just on the good side of the draw. But now that you're not, now that it's for everybody, now that it's for everybody with faith, you're ticked, yeah, I'm going to make you jealous. There is a uh, confusion, a stumbling, a choice that people are making that as they turn away from God, God fixes them, destines them, shapes their future for them to be vessels of wrath, no doubt. But in all that, the holding out his hands to a disobedient and contrary people, there is a, there is a desire to have them turn. We're all the way back to the verse, verse, verse. My heart and desire and prayer to God is that they may be saved. And God has the same opinion. I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Jesus Christ says the same thing when he crosses the Mount of Olives coming on Jerusalem. He sees it and he goes, I long to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing and you would not. And that's the tension we're dealing with. God wants to be sought. He wants to be found. He wants his righteousness to be had. The only way to have it is through his mercy. The only way to get to his mercy is through faith. There is nothing you can do that would be good enough for his righteousness, so the only thing you're going to get from him is his judgment. And he is trying to entice you, setting up this stone, laying the groundwork, setting up the stone of Jesus Christ, to make it the head of the corner, the, the keystone of this building, and they're falling all over it. They're confused. Because they still want to establish their own righteousness. And until you say, and I was telling a young lady this a few, well, a couple weeks ago, she asked me about this issue of faith. and so We have the word of God. We don't have a prophet here. We don't have uh, an apostle. Um, but we have uh, pretty faithfully recorded the writings of those apostles and prophets and the recorders of those things. Have you believed what's in front of you? Have you believed God? Not after you've studied it all, not after you've proved it all, but have you come to God and say, Lord, you're, you are my guide. This is what is what I believe. I don't understand it all. I don't have it all worked out. I don't have a systematic for it. But what I run across, I'm going to believe. 
Don't be one of the disobedient and contrary people because his mercy, his election, his promise goes to faith. That's the way it's always been, the way it's always going to be, and that faith has just become more and more exquisite, more clarity involved in it. Jesus Christ is known, whereas Abraham just had the promise that he would be the father of multitudes, and we have the promise, looking back at the agent that is our salvation, we have the promise of Christ. Well, that is the end of chapter 10. How did I do that? Pretty quick. Well, let's thank God. Dear Lord, thank you very much for our salvation. We are grateful. Thank you for opening wide the, the path to pursuing you. Though many of us did not seek you, we found you. We are grateful that all of mankind, Jew and Gentile alike, can look at their sins and turn to you and believe in the work of your Son. And in his name we pray. Amen.